Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Blood on the Rocks. I'm your host, Akshay Taylor, and today I'm joined, technically once again, yeah. <laughs> by Emin Veron. Yeah. Into the last recording, just like evaporated. I it? fucked up. Yeah, it's weird. I don't, I don't know. We went, well, we went out and then yeah, got back was... and it was gone. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? All my other software was open. <laughs> like... It's unusual. It's all right. Now we'll uh, get to know about like, the bisexual, like, swordswomen. Of course. R.I.P. Well, yeah. <laughs> It might come yeah, it might come again. again yeah. We'll see. But yeah, so, do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Um, well, hmm, it's a weird thing. Well, I describe myself as I am a student, fourth year's master's student, question mark, question mark, question mark, doing nuclear engineering, which is kind of fun. I spend most of my time around eccentrics, locked in rooms with hmm. potentially cancerous equipment, carcinogens everywhere. It's a great way to live your life. That's pretty solid. Yeah. You, you definitely know that work is slowly killing you. It's one, <laughs> one way of seeing things. So, what are you going to be telling me about today? Oh, okay. So I had a collection of stories. Um, some fairy tales, some just weird like folk tales, some fables. But it all started from a weird, like I don't know, lead that my mum gave me when I was a kid. Mm. About how during Christmas fable, Christmas time, question mark, um, where, yeah, where they were back in most of Europe, where you would normally get like either a bit of coal if you were bad, or you get like a present if you were nice. Apparently in Croatia, the story was if you did good, you got like like a treat. But if you did badly, this elf would come out of the stocking and beat the shit out of you. <laughs> and I really, really looked for the, the name of this elf because it had a name and I've forgotten it. And my parents have forgotten it. But me going down the sort of like Wikipedia hole to find this thing brought out so many really weird stories that I thought would be nice to share. I think that's a very good choice. Yeah. Well, um, meanwhile, I'm going to be talking about something from China. Um, Back to the Far East again. Yes. So we've done Japan twice. Korea once. And Korea once. Um, I think that's it so far. Yeah. And I think. I'm not even sure anymore. Yeah. Like, what's this? This one's going to be episode 13, I think. Which is ridiculous. It's crazy, isn't it? I'm going to be talking about a dude called Zhang Shanzong. Or Xianzong, I don't know how to pronounce Chinese. You looked at me there. I mean, yeah. I don't know, but it's going to be fun finding out. Yeah. I think at this point, most people that listen know that I encourage bad pronunciation at this point because <laughs> I am not good at good pronunciation. Okay. Just own it. Yeah. But yeah, so he was basically the leader of a peasant revolt in, um, in northern China. Uh, and he was known for a lot of fucked up shit. Sounds like a good way to live your <laughs> life. But yeah, so that would be fun to get into. Okay. But um, yeah, I like to get people yeah. a bit of a choice. Uh, do you want to go first or should I? Yeah, I can go first. Sounds good. I don't, um, know, I don't know how far I'll get into this rabbit hole because it's eclectic, but they all revolve around the theme. Okay, Yeah. that works. So, um, well, in that case, we will not cut to music this time because I have some promos to play. Oh, okay. shit. Wow, uh, for, some, for All Bad Things and Murderish Podcast. So those will be playing in a, in a couple of seconds, and then we'll be back with your story. Hello! I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And we're the hosts of All Bad Things. If you like true crime and have a morbid sense of curiosity, which, let's face it, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, then you may like our podcast, All Bad Things. All Bad Things is a podcast about disasters, tragedies, obviously bad things, because that's in the title. 
but with a sort of lighthearted twist to it as much as can be with disasters and tragedies. You can find us anywhere you podcast and on social media at All Bad Things Pod. Look for new episodes every Monday, and we hope to see you then. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. And we are back. So, um, Emin, do you want to take it away? Yeah. Okay. So, I really, really tried to find the name of this elf. Mm-hmm. But for, for all purposes, me, me, me my creation isn't very strong. Couldn't find it. But not that it would have mattered anyway, because what I found instead is something equally as terrifying. You guys need to look this up if you, if you want actually a good visual image of it. But there is an equivalent of this, which you might know of, called Krampus. I love Krampus. Yes, Krampus. He's one, of my, he's one of my favorites. And now, like, Krampus, apparently there's Krampus festivals in Germany. Yes. And they are the best thing. Like, they're just people dressed up kind of like, not like like Satan, like the sort of weird sort of idea what people thought Satan looked like. And um, sort of like very, very goatee, almost like a Wookiee with horns. <laughs> okay, and Krampus they, is now a Wookiee with horns. Yeah. Excellent. And now they just go around scaring kids. Vaguely based, so this is one of the really one of the things I really really liked about it is because it's like yeah fine it there is folklore of it in Eastern Europe but it sort of exists everywhere mm. like the concept even Pan it goes back to Mesopotamia doesn't it that concept and it's just weird how it sort of transcended from this sort of like weird like Earth demigod type thing into like Satan you know it's, yeah. it's kind of a big jump you know I mean I feel like some versions would have taken certain aspects and taken it to ten yeah. <laughs> But everyone loves Goatman. Look, Goatman's over there, like, terrorising some kids. Right. <laughs> yes, I man, I would love to go to one of these festivals, man. Yeah, I feel like it'd be, like, one of the best experiences that you could ever have. Like, yeah. So that, that, that came into that. So apparently it is everywhere. But it triggered me to look into other sort of fairy tales that were like there. And mm-hmm. I came across this book called Women Who Run With The Wild, which is this... It was very, like... The person who wrote it was very colourful. He had lots of, like, passionately wrote it. But it was just a collection of fables that, that had a common theme or that they she'd gone around and collected fairy tales and noticed that a lot of them just followed the same fairy tale. And the one I'd probably like to start with is the one f- Baba Yaga or Baba Roga, as I've known it from, um, that I was known in Croatia from. Okay. But obviously that was in the John Wick series, if you know that very much. But I, that's not the original. I obviously. knew Baba Yaga before John yeah. Wick, but I also really like John Wick <laughs> yeah everyone loves John Wick it's just like it's the specific. first one I didn't like the second one <gasps> no Ugh. anyway so as you know the Baba Yaga story so um, I just to get a quick run through of the story so Baba Yaga is this like old lady normally you would expect them to look like a witch but she just looks like a haggard old woman with a stick sometimes she looks really heavily disfigured um, sometimes she just looks like an old person with like a like a robe but the key point of this thing is that she lives in this house. That's a hut, and the hut has, in some um, some aspects, has chicken legs, and it sort of like moves away if you don't want to someone to see it, 
or it, or it sometimes it just like runs away from you. But um, I was reading lots and lots of things about it, and a lot of people come to the conclusion that like the um, Baba Yaga itself isn't really like a demon or a witch or anything, but it's like the archetype of the old wise woman. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So like, because like she isn't necessarily evil; she's kind of neutral in a way, but she's like obscenely powerful. Yeah. Like, like a Tom Bombadil, but like more evil than I, I also love Tom Bombadil. Yeah, Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Person so powerful didn't give a fuck about the ring. Like I, I adore Tom Bombadil in the books. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, going like going deeper into the story. So like, there's lots and lots of adventures with Barbaroga, but this is one story she might know. I don't know Vasilisa. I don't know the stories regarding her exactly. Mm. I like I only re- I know her just because I know I I know a fair bit of folklore in general. Yeah. But I don't really know the specifics of her. Okay. She's one of the ones I never actually looked into too much. I really like Vasilisa. So, like, Vasilisa was, like, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird story. It's kind of like Cinderella. It feels like Cinderella, but it's a bit different. Okay. So, the story, there's lots of versions of the story, but the story that I read involved um, Vasilisa as a small child. So, when she was a tiny, when she was a little babe, she went to her mother, her mother, and her mother was dying. Her mother was on a deathbed. She was like, here, have this doll. Like, trust in it, and... Um, whatever comes forward, she'll know the answer type thing. And like mother passed away and just obviously Vasilisa was sad, everything was awful. Then her stepsisters came and adopted her. And this is where it has that bare similarity to Cinderella because the stepsisters hated Vasilisa. They like, they really like tried to fuck with her. Like they made her do all the hard work in the sort of house, that sort of thing. Okay. And what happens is one day the sisters said like, oh, you need to get some firewood. So go get the firewood and go to Baba Yaga or Yaga. So I was stick with Baba Yaga in this case. And like, so she was like, okay, who's that? Who? Yeah. And went to the forest and she was like, it was dark and scary and shit. And then she came across Baba Yaga and Baba Yaga let her inside. Basically, what Baba um, Yaga wanted was, is debatable what she wanted really, but she put a, like an ultimatum onto her that she had to complete three tasks before... She came back and then she'd give her like the fire to come, the firewood to come back to. Okay. And the risk there was that if she didn't get it, that I think Barbie Yaga would kill her and eat her. That sounds like Barbie Yaga. It sounds like what an old person would do. <laughs> <laughs> so there were three like various varying tasks. Um, one of them was where she had to like separate soil from poppy seeds. And if you've ever met poppy seeds, poppy seeds are mini. They're really really small. Mm. So, like, separating them into the pile would have been, like, an impossible task. Um, I think the other one was, like, to tidy the house, and the third one was to, like, like sow the fields or something like that. Okay. And each one of these tasks was like, something that was, like, just almost impossible to do in the time frame that they gave. But what she did every time is that she looked at the doll, and the doll sort of talked to her, and they answered back, like, yo, you need to do this, you do that, sort of thing. And it's like, I think on the third time when it was the poppy seed, she was like, just have a nap, and I'll sort it out, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... So it was like Baba, um, Baba Yaga came back after like the third attempt. She was like, "What the fuck?" And then looked at her and she was like, oh, "Okay, cool. I'll, um, I guess like you take this back to your house. This is your firewood." And gave her a stick, but the stick had a skull on it, and the skull was on fire. Pretty metal. It's pretty fucking metal for like an old lady to give her that. Anyway, so like she, Vasilisa took this skull with the flames on it and brought it back home and put it in the fireplace of the hearth. Mm-hmm. And what that that skull sort of. Uh, blew up and glue green she left the house and the house burned down all the sisters died okay the end and like <laughs> the, the weird thing was like obviously it sounds really fucked up and weird wait repeat that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was sudden repeat that <laughs> so basically that that skull was fucked up it was like death in it so they put it in the hearth 
and the house just burned down. Okay. Yeah, but it took the sisters with her. But like Vasilisa lived, and like she had that, she had her own sort of free reign. Yeah. And obviously, fairy tales exist for so many reasons. And some of them tell some of them tell stories. Like Abel and Cain was definitely had like a anthropological thing behind it. Yeah, mm. Abel and Cain. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of people said that that was to do with the death of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the birth of civilization and farming. Because okay. it's like the vegetarian kills the guy that eats meat. Okay, I had no idea. Yeah, so there's, there's, some, there's some commentary there. But a lot of the commentary that I've read about that story is to do with that Vasilisa is the person's inner um, intuition. Okay. And that passes down from like son to father, mother to daughter. Yeah. And so that when the mother died, she passed down her intuition onto her. And oh, I get it. Yeah. yeah. And that, that makes... that's quite clever, I thought. And especially because she went, because she had that intuition, she went from there to the wise old woman. Yeah. So she went to like a, either a future version of herself or like the archetypal old grandmother. And she gave, the grandmother gave advice and just said, fuck those guys, you've got to kill them all. I find it weird that fairy tales, they don't really tell like interesting stories. They tell sort of like weird sort of self-discovery stories. Gen- yeah. My, my experience anyway. I do like a good fairy tale, yeah. like comfort stories. Yeah. I feel like there need to be some more modern ones nowadays because like everything now is sort of like a reinvention of the old ones. There need to be some like new sort of bright and shiny ones. Oh, man, it's hard though. Yeah. I'm sure people are trying, mm. but it's hard to get an instant classic nowadays. Yeah, this is true. So that was the one. Yeah, okay, uh, moving on. Which was kind of cool. And then there was more that I found in this book as well. Like um, It got into, into Selkies. Do you know Selkies? I know Selkies. You know, you know too much folklore. I, I love is. folklore. That's what it is. I, I love folklore so much. Oh, damn it. Yeah, so um, this one's going to be a bit shorter, but in the same way, it was to do with the, just the standard story. So it's a Selkie gets rid of her, like, seal skin. And so, like, I don't know. If, 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 Selkies are the seal people, right? Yes. Okay, excellent. They're like seal people, but they can, like, transform. They're, like, sort of, like, like reversible mermaids, almost. Okay. So, like, instead of being, like, half person, half mermaid and stuck like that, they're sort of like they can choose to be a seal. Sometimes they can take off and not be a seal. It's kind okay, of like, yeah, it's quite makes, loose. Okay, that makes sense. Um, it's fine at the moment. So the, 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 the standard story, which there's loads and loads of versions of it, is that basically a selkie gets rid of a skin, goes and marries someone and has a kid. But the person that he, um, they marry hides their skin away so they can't go back into the ocean. So that mm. person seems really sad and, da, 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 and they have a kid and the kid's really happy. And then basically one day, like the mother discovers, finds out where they've hit the skin and she just goes straight back into the sea and leaves the kid behind. Kind of a dick move, but... <laughs> just fuck this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fucked up. And basically what happens is that the kid goes every night to like the beach. Yeah. And he basically hears this like so- this singing and things like that. And he doesn't know what it is until he comes to a certain age. And then um, I think he starts growing a seal skin or sometimes he finds a seal skin. It's complicated. Okay. It's kind of like it's one of those things where if you go into details of it, it's kind of cre- creepy, kind of gruesome, mm. Loki. Like just like Loki starts growing seal skin. Do, do they start crying as well? Because like seals cry a lot, don't they? Yeah. 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 Like there were a few on a couple of field trips actually. Aww. So, but um, I think eventually he comes back into ocean. He gets reacquainted with his peoples. But like I think the the deep sort of morals. I don't know if it's deep moral to it is, is but like I think it's a story just telling about how someone sort of finds themselves because like they think they're one thing and then they grow up and they learn that they're another okay but I don't know for sure yeah because like selfies aren't one that I, I'm too familiar with I just yeah. like I I'm pretty sure Spirits Podcast did an episode on them but but I'm really just going to say that now because I can edit this out if I'm wrong hey <laughs> smart 
it's a, it's a Scottish and sort of Celtic a fairy tale and like a bit like the other one there, isn't, there aren't many like there aren't many variations really which is kind of different because like, like with the other ones like Barbaroga there's just tons and tons and tons of them yeah now that you mention that I don't think I know yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite a unique one actually yeah like I get I don't know much relating to seals yeah because like it says like it says like on this Wikipedia page it's like Irish, Scottish Ferozzi and Icelandic but Icelandic folklore is quite shaped by Scottish because a lot of the Vikings stopped over in Scotland and then went up to Iceland. Yeah. So. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah. So it's, uh, I imagine you could trace it back to a, either like a text or just trace it back to a, t- a period I think, of time. Yeah, one of, like, one of my favourite parts of, of folklore is just being able to connect different civilizations to each other through yeah. stories. And it kind of it's kind of interesting because it makes you realise that um, across civilizations. People are still scared of the same shit. Yeah, <laughs> like there is there's a, there's a common humanity there, isn't it? Like a lot, of, like a lot of the stories are founded in fear. I find. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Hey, but, yeah. speaking of fear, Bluebeard. Oh, yes. excellent. Yes. All right. So you know this one? Uh, I barely know it actually. What? This this is the one I know I know the least out of what you said so far. Oh, okay, that's pretty good. Okay, so I'm not really sure what the moral of this one is, but. There's been my readings of it has shown that it is the this storyline you can basically put it underneath every romance novel ever and it sort of fits. Hmm. As fucked up as it is. So basically romance novels follow this trope until the end and they change it to make it into a happy ending. Okay, I I, I think I love a good bad ending. Yeah. <laughs> like I I like my favorite endings tend to be the ones where I I am I adore the heroic sacrifice ending, you where the main character. I like, I like, fil- I like films where the main character dies <laughs> yeah, <but they laughs> right at the end because I'm just like, because it it's not expected a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm just like, it throws out there. Yes, yeah, it's true. But yeah. <sighs> back, anyway, back, back in the up, day. Hey, Bluebeard. Bluebeard, yeah. Right, Bluebeard. So Bluebeard. Okay. Bluebeard's a story which apparently underpins most romance romance novels. Um, it's really, really, really um, fascinating in the sense that it very kind of weirdly relatable in a way she's sort of like the curiosity of the cat meets some kind of weird sort of serial killer shit so like uh, Bluebeard's this powerful he's either like a mage or he's like a wealthy nobleman depending on the story and he basically he has this history where like all of his like wives keep going missing and no one really knows why but Mm. everyone marries him because he's rich as fuck and what ends up happening is is that he goes to these three sisters and he wants to marry them and all of them are like "Uh, I like him but I'm not sure. And I think in some stories they get convinced into doing it, sometimes they get coerced into doing it. And one of them marries them. And he like disappears off to like do some business. And he gives the wife some keys and the keys like and the keys on the keys like yeah, you can have, this gives you anything to into the house except the cellar. Don't go to the cellar, for God's sake, don't fucking go into the cellar. And she's like, Okay, cool. And the moment he leaves, she's like, Oh, I guess you need to go into the cellar then. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I'm applying this to a film that I watched a few months, like a month ago, yeah. and it's and it's fitting very well. So uh, keep it going. It really does. <laughs> and there are some versions of the story where, like, um, basically she goes out into the woods and she, like, hides up in a tree somewhere and watches him, and finds out that like he's either like not human, or he is human and he's burying a corpse. Mm. Or basically, the idea is that there's a reveal that he's a monster. But some story, some versions of the story don't have that, and some do. Which I think is kind of an interesting point because if you look at the whole story, then that has some obviously some meaning depending on what the person mm. intended to say. But anyway, she goes back to the house 
and she puts her like lock in the key. She goes and says, and basically all of the wives are dead in the basement, and some of them are on hooks, some aren't hooks, but there's blood everywhere, and there's blood in the key lock, mm. and she tries to keep the key out, takes the key out, but the key's covered in blood, and the blood won't come off. Doesn't matter what happens to it, it's not coming off. So she's like, she's freaking. So she goes and tells her sisters, and like the sisters are panicking, and as she's trying to work out what's going on. One of the sisters gets away. She he comes home, and like he's just gonna go and kill them both. Okay. And depending on the version of the story, either she dies, or she gets help and they kill Bluebeard. I find it hilarious that Bluebeard himself, like, like how, like common this can fit to everything. Like, like that fit almost exactly to what I was, what I had in mind. Yeah. But now I've said that, I can't say what film it was, it's going to spoil everything for everyone. <laughs> because it's literally an entire film. <laughs> like, and I, I, I'm not really sure what the like deeper meaning is to this, other than how people aren't what they seem. The idea is, like, I, I feel like Twilight fits this real good. Nice. Because like, there's always some kind of reveal where they're actually just monsters. Mm. I was thinking of a Del Toro film. Ooh. So, um... Okay. If you know what it is, let me know on Twitter. <laughs> so, that's that. Yeah, so we go back into the Basilisa story, because I am scrolling through to see in extra detail. I have now found the story. So, one of the, thi- one of the tasks that she has is to, is to get oil out of corn. Okay. Yeah, which is still an interesting thing. And there's, like, three... Okay. Yeah, so there's three, there's three riders. One for, like, day, one for, like, uh, middle age, one for death. And, like, what I found really interesting is that death, is has like multiple pairs of hands, okay. Which is like meant to be sort of an Eastern thing, isn't it? Really, because I... I don't know anything in the West that really has like multiple hands ever. I don't know. I I recall one of the, I, I recall one of the descriptions of angels being as they have like a fuck ton of wings. <laughs> really, like, I think it's like a hundred wings somehow. I didn't know that. Whereas like, I can't remember what it's from. It, it was like I think it was a hundred wings. I'm not sure. I could be lying. It was no, like no, it was like all, that. it was like all wings and and with loads of eyes as well. Going back to my angsty occult days, that, that sounds about right to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. I, my main my main sort of misconception I always found funny about angels is that they always view them as having agenda and they're not agendaless. They're like not really they're not human at all. And nope. <laughs> people, people try to humanize them, which I find really like interesting. It makes sense. Mm. Um, most folklore is at some point humanized in some way yeah um sorry i'm just trying to bring my thoughts together um go 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 a lot of folklore does tend to get like a lot of creatures or whatever tend to get humanized because it because in the end people are trying to associate with their own lives and a lot of stories are based off of their like they normally originate from someone's experience or what someone thinks of someone or, or some event and people are like and in the end, a lot of the time, people just like, it's something humanist. Because that's, yeah, that's the only thing you can relate to, isn't it? And if, because before the internet, you'd just be like, humans are literally the cleverest shit ever. And, like, what's cleverer than a human apart from God? And so it's not too much of a jump to be like, okay, maybe there's something in between. So it must be halfway, so angels must be halfway between humans and God. There must be both then, yeah. Yeah, like, there's all. Like a lot of times there's this like thing where they're trying to think of something better than humans not quite godly. Yeah. And and they tend to give it some kind of human features. Like even devils and stuff, they tend to have like a humanoid form, I find. 
Yeah, they did. They half did like half go half man. Yeah, they? like Krampus. Yeah, it's like normally it's some at least partially human. Yeah, or but yeah, they're like some kind of twisted version of yeah. it. But yeah, anyway, so I'll let you get back to yours. Um, let's have a look. No, I'm, I am scrolling through here to see if there's anything else here that was, that's really interesting to point out. But I'm not really noticing anything other than like the house. Oh yeah, Barbie Yaga's house is made out of human bones. I didn't really, I didn't, think, didn't mention that at all. And that that leads back to the theory that she is actually like an old person because it's like she knows the secrets of life. Old, yeah. Old, I, I can't find it on here, but I know it. And I just thought it'd be just a good point to end this with is that Pinocchio, at the end of the original fairy tale, hangs himself. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> that was sudden. Yeah, there we go. It's you right. just dropped that one on me. You can take that, you can take that away for you. Go, the listeners there. <laughs> Any listeners that are here, you can take that away for you. Next time you see the story or tell it to your kid, if you have a kid, you tell it to a child, who knows. <laughs> you just dropped that one on me yeah. straight up. There right? we go. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that at all. Krampus, Vasilisa, Seals, and a dead Pinocchio. There you go, guys. Nice. Okay, so um, on that, I get is that everything you went to? Yeah, say? that was everything, man. Okay, and then we, yeah, so we're gonna cut to music and then we'll be back with Zhang Shanzong. I don't actually, I, but that, yeah, okay, that's, that's what I'm sticking with. Okay, go with that. I, that's what I'm sticking with, Zhang Shangyong. Um, so yeah, we'll go to that yeah, and you're in for a ride. back so are you ready to hear about this guy yeah let's go for it okay so Zhang Shanzong often romanized to Chang Sainchung because those are so similar I mean it's hard to translate yeah, things true he was basically a leader of a peasant revolt in Yan'an in the Shaanxi province in northern China okay. eventually conquering Sichuan and uh, naming himself king of the Shi dynasty. Zhang was born in September 18 in 1606 into a pretty poor family mm-hmm. um, in Dingbian, Shaanxi province in, like I said, northern China. Yeah. And it was during the Ming dynasty. He was, like, when he grew to about his prime, so probably, like, late teens, early 20s or whatever. It's not too clear when I get when I was researching, but it's yeah. definitely when he was, like, a young adult. So at that point he was serving in the Ming army and he was and he was known for being quite tall mm-hmm. and having a yellow complexion and a very heavy chin. So he had like that thick jawline. Yeah, in, a Ch- in Chinese description, it's known as a tiger chin. Cool. And was therefore given the name of Yellow Tiger, which is a great nickname. That's a great nickname to have. To be it's honest. strong. While in the army, he was actually at one point he was actually sentenced to death for violations of military rules. But he was actually reprieved of uh, any uh, punishment by a senior officer because he was impressed by his appearance. Damn. All kinds of gains. Given that, given that, like, he already, like, conquered, like, you can say earlier, they conquered the whole dynasty. It was pretty good they got saved there. They would have changed so, the entirety of human history. Yeah, I mean, it says a lot about just how imposing this guy looked in the first, mm. like, because I'm just imagining this really hench guy. Yeah. But, yeah. foot tall. Oh man, too far. I think at that point in time, six foot would be massive. Yeah, so... six foot would have been huge back then. That was just a bit of background anyway. And um, towards the end of the Ming Dynasty, so like late 20, 1620s or so, um, there was a lot of drought, famine, uh, epidemics, and all sorts in China. Yeah. 
which ended up leading to a peasant revolt because, you know, yeah. that's what you do when when things are bad. <laughs> and basically, because they were basically resisting the Ming Dynasty, collecting grains and taxes and other stuff. Yeah. And basically they joined the rebel armies, which were known as roving bandits. This because they were very mobile and not part of any government, so they, they could have been moved, they moved around very quickly and stuff. Mm. And they, this actually spread, spread so into... like guerrilla warfare type stuff? Kind of, yeah. It's like um, very quite, the quick raids, quick in, quick out, yeah. that kind of stuff. So it's very hard to get an organised force against them. And yeah, basically it ended up spreading into other parts, all, all parts of China because it was so, yeah, like successful so effective. Yeah. yeah. In this t- time, uh, in 1630, mm. um, Zhang escaped from the army and joined the rebel forces in Minzi ca- County uh, and basically established, um, made himself as a rebel leader, calling himself Bado Wang, uh, which um, basically translates to Eighth Great King. I see. And basically, so like, he, he modelled himself as he saw himself going to high places. Yeah. And remember, he started as a very poor family yeah. peasant because he... Uh, led these roving bandits, which were really mobile and stuff. Um, he uh, raided villages and all sorts uh, on the western edge of uh, Shanxi, uh, plundering yeah. like settlements and basically re- and retreating back to like. So, yeah, uh, I, I love ra- a great story yeah. of someone just rising up from a low place. Yeah, basically, yeah, basically, just ra- raid all these places and then hide in the hills. A bit later, he'd move on from like these villages and all these small settlements into towns and cities, which was. That's a pretty big jump. Yeah, uh, I don't know how he, I don't know how people. I don't even like right now. I find it hard to like get dressed and have socks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let alone like conquer a city. How does that work? I know, right? Um, but yeah, so he, he moved. It was very mobile, moving place to place, not really settling in place. And he's actually defeated a few times by the Ming Dynasty forces. Ah. But he was. But you can tell he's very clever because when it suited him, he'd just surrender and. Which happened at, from what I, from what I found from translated sources because a lot of it is Chinese. Yeah, can imagine much. Um, at least in 1631, 1638, he did it then, and then he would later regroup and resume the rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he was actually. Which is, which, because like he knew how to game the system. Yeah. But yeah. So in sixteen thirty five, when that came along, he joined a larger group of bandits, which included another rebel leader called. Um, Li Zicheng. That sounded right that time. I hope it is. Yeah. Because, yeah. I'm always really proud when I get things right. Yeah. Like, someone actually messaged me on Twitter the other like, like, a few days... I think it was a few days ago. It was like a week or so ago, and it was like, you pronounced that right, good job. And I was like, thank you, I wasn't sure. <laughs> thank you, random citizen. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, anyway. big gr- This other big group of bandits um, basically... Uh, kept pushing through and yeah basically this this leader um, Li Zicheng would later go on to capture Beijing and finish the Ming Dynasty damn uh, basically devastating Hina- the Henan province yeah. um, and pushing into Anhui um, basically ravaging that area now, including pillaging and all that they they also burnt down the Ming ancestral temple Zongdu which is quite famous yeah. at a point but after that the rebel armies basically broke up because there was n- the Ming Dynasty yeah. ended, uh, and Zhang ended up heading to to Hubei. Um, Sixteen thirty seven comes along, and he gets joined by other rebels and stuff because he's quite well known at this point. Yeah, and his army now reaches three hundred thousand men. <laughs> yeah, three hundred thousand is a lot of men. 
Like, how do you even feed that? Could like, you? How much money did he have? Like, he it's was rich. It's hard to think of three hundred thousand men. Yeah, never mind control them. Yeah, because like, that's more than there are at this university. It's like five times our uni. Yeah, like it's very difficult to conceive numbers that big. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, with these guys, he he pushed again into Anhui. Yeah. And then to Jiangsu, and then all, almost all the way down to Nanjing, before being defeated and retreating back to Hubei. Then 1638 comes along next year, and like I said earlier, he surrenders to the Ming Supreme Commander, Zhong Wenkan. Okay, go with that. We're going to go for that? Yeah, going to roll with it. But he was allowed to serve as a regional Ming commander, because he was that well known. Yeah, that's that's why I always like it. Once you get so good at what you do, it doesn't matter whose side you're on, they want you on your side. Yeah, at this it's, point... It's too valuable to kill. Yeah, at this point, like he was quite well known for it. Yeah. And, uh, however, this wasn't the cleverest idea. Because in 1938, he basically went back on his promise and was like, nah, <sighs> I'm out, and uh, rebelled again, defeating the Ming forces led by... It doesn't sound very stable in China at this period of time. Oh, no, because this this period was um, actually known as the... I can't, can't really exact term, I've actually... This time I forgot to write down, but it was like the times of chaos, mm. I think it was, because there were so many changes and... Yeah. So it was like 1066. So many people China. died in this period. Yeah. It was like a... I can't remember how long it was. I think it was like a 40-year period where it was just a load of changes and stuff. Yeah. And it was quite... Conscious. Like, at this point, death was a statistic rather than a tragedy <laughs> because it was that bad. Yeah. But yeah, so... Um, they, like I said, in 1939, he rebelled and def- actually defeated the Ming forces led by the Ming general Zhou Langzhu. And in 1640, he and he actually he got defeated by the general oh, in damn. question, and ended up fleeing to the mountains with a few followers. Deal, like he still had around because yeah. people had loyalty to this guy at this point. They knew he could do what he could do stuff. Yeah, they knew he was clever as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Basically, they, fell, they uh, hid in the mountains in eastern Sichuan before 1641, where he came out again and attacked Zhang Yang, uh, and basically captured it and executed the imperial prince there damn he made a statement it's not like going to back in the palace and just killing Prince Harry right? it's, just, yeah. it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a wild thing to do I, mean, too fair, but I think back then there was a lot like like especially in this part of China it was a lot more common for royals to die yeah. because of how much instability there was yeah, in so much area. fighting um, like I said a lot of people died in this time mm. in this area and basically two years after that he took Man- Macheng in Hubei, yep. um, and his army once started getting bigger again, got to fifty-seven thousand men. Uh, so Downsized from the three hundred thousand he had. Yeah, but this is after his defeats. Yeah. So it's impressed. It. So he managed to keep these this many men. After he took he took attacked the city, he um, incorporated the rebels in there yeah. into his army, and uh, and basically went on to capture the provincial capital of Wuchang. And once again, killed the Imperial Prince. So he's killed two Imperial Princes now. Probably in his mid-30s at this point. Yeah. Mid-40s to early 40s. I'm not good at maths. I'm not going to do that right now. And this is basically where his rise properly came in. in Because he captured uh, the provincial capital of Wuchang, killed the prince, and then proclaimed himself Shi Wang, which is King of the West. After that, the capital was actually captured again by Ming forces. Mm. And um, after that, he... Even though he got captured again, he got out and stuff. Yeah. And he stayed at a place called Changsha, where he basically controlled a lot of the Hunan and 
Jiangxi provinces. Yeah. Now, in 1644, the next year, yeah. uh, he abandoned Hunan and led 100,000 of his troops, which he had now, yeah. uh, towards... Grow, double in size. Yeah, towards Xichuan. And basically, his army surrounded uh, Chongqing from two directions, surrounding the city, one of the big cities at that point. 100,000 men in like the Western civilization is, is like an unthinkable number of people to be fighting in something. Mm-hmm. Like, completely in China, and it's just like cash. It took a, a few days of fighting, but after a while, he, his army managed to blast a hole through the wall, and they captured the city on July 25, 1644. And uh, this is where his legends like, and rumors start, come, start popping up. Yeah. And he starts becoming a proper part of history. Yeah. Um, well, I say proper part, like a legendary part of history, even. He's like a legendary commander to keep yeah. going this long without dying. As a commander goes, it's kind of hard to say. Mm. Um, it's not. It's not entire. Like, like I said, in this time of chaos, it's a lot of um, sources are very varied. Yeah, there's a lot of propaganda and stuff going on, and it's very hard to tell what's what's real and what's not. But yeah, but like this part, of what, this part of where his legend starts, anyway. Because um, after he captured the city, he was it was said to have cut off the hands of the city's defenders and massacred a lot of people. Jesus. And after that, the rest of Sichuan was made much easier. To, like he found it quite easy to capture because news of this basically went went round, and he announced to the locals that they wouldn't be harmed if they just gave over their officials. And their storehouses, and then surrender without resistance. Ah, I see. And um, he took basically after taking Chengdu in September 9, 1644, there was no real opposition in the rest of Sichuan County at all. Mm. He set up court there in Chengdu, where he was before, and um, he renamed it Xiching, or, or Western Capital, and declared himself king of the, the Daxi dynasty. Mm. Uh, so he, the, named, he named his own dynasty after himself. Yeah, so the Great Western Dynasty. So he was king of the West of the Great Western Dynasty at this point. And now we get to his rule, which was not a good uh, time for always, people. always one good, one good battle, battle, like, general, then awful leader. But, um, thing is, so yeah, according to an account by a guy called Gabriel de Magales, uh, who was a Portuguese Jesuit, who was basically just like a Christian missionary, mm-hmm. He was working with a few, like another guy called uh, Lodovico Buglio. Yep. Uh, which is really hard to say. I was prepa- I was slightly prepared, slightly prepared for Chinese pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. I always straight I completely Spanish. forgot about this. I completely forgot Portuguese. Yeah. Um, but yeah. They basically these guys basically both worked as astron- astronomers. Zang. Yeah. But according to them, um, he began his rule with such liberality, justice, and magnificence. By which he captivated all hearts, that many ma- mandarins, famous in both civic as in military affairs, whom fear was keeping concealed, left the hideouts and flew to his side. Mm, okay. So basically, he can he would, like he started his rule as being such so justified in what he's doing that people came out of hiding to come join him. So he was that good. He had that charisma, and he was that good at what he was doing that he people like just. Just flock to him. Yeah. Damn. Though, after a resistance to his rule didn't cease, and Chongqing was taken by Ming loyalists in spring of 1645, things kind of went downhill. Oh, as you did, as you like, imagine. Basically, he started on a campaign of terror, to quote, and was well underway of this by mid-1645. 
to try and stamp out any resistance in Sichuan. In November of 1645, according to De Ma- like, uh, fucking hell, this is gonna be hard to say. No. Every time, De Magales, Zhang basically heard that there was to quote huge and par- powerful army was coming against him, and basically he announced once again a quote yeah. <laughs> uh, that the people of his kingdom had a secret pact with the enemy and planned an uprising. Because of this, he was determined to kill all. Leaving not one person alive. Sounds like he had serious trust issues. Yeah. So these other Jesuits or Christian missionaries now understood the evil of this guy. Uh, basically reported that they managed to save a few of the people that were taken. The rest were killed anyway. Uh, um, this is not what you want. Now going back a couple of years to 1636, uh, there was a guy, there was a man too called Aisen Gyoro. In, in yeah, basically around here he found the Qing Dynasty um, and invaded the, the south of the Great Wall after the fall of the Ming Dynasty okay. in 1644. Then a couple of years later he sent out a force under the leadership of a guy called Hauge and basically attending to attack Zheng's domain in Sichuan. Yeah. So this was that army that he was talking about. Yeah. And basically this just meant that his campaign of terror to quote again uh, increased intensity hey what do you need nothing, nothing like a bit of oppression yep yeah uh, especially in like 1646 after this he basically he decided to abandon Sichuan his government had basically disintegrated because all, all but three of his principal officials had um, either committed suicide or all were executed well, that sounds like a fun time Why, which though? says a lot about him I must think have, he must have been that bad a person that either like got killed by him or they didn't want to work for him so back in the day, you can't really quit your job. You just kill yourself. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. <sighs> so, it sounds, like something, it sounds like something's changed in him, though. Because he went from being, like, this really loved guy to, like, this, like, complete butcher. thing is, like, he was always known to be a bit of a prick. Because, like, remember, at first he was... He was already condemned to death because he was going past military law mm. rules and stuff. Which is most likely yeah. because he was... Fucking up people's shit. Sounds about right. <laughs> but yeah, so um, there's a few rumors about his rule and stuff. Like, like I said, very hard to tell which is true, which is not. Yeah. But yeah, basically, there's a lot of events surrounding his rule and, uh, and after that. Which, but what we do know is that after his rule, Sichuan was pretty much destroyed. <laughs> like, oh god. Um, so, like, so he wasn't like the most like magnanimous ruler yeah. that everyone expected him to be. Yeah. Yeah, he was said to have engaged in one in to quote uh, one of the most hair-raising genocides in in imperial history, and there are a lot of sto- there are a lot of stories and legends about his about his killings and stuff. I knew this was going to go somewhere fucked up. One of the accounts um, said that he killed over three hundred courtiers because of to quote foul sneezes, and that officers were based on how many people they killed um, with. Amputated arms being the basis of confirming said massacres. So, like, you can't just take dog tag, you've got to take their limbs. That's, yep. that's the future of today. And basically, they said that they committed genocide as punishment for rebellion in the Sichuan region and was obsessed with flaying people and execution by something called Ling Chi. Ling Chi. Do you know Ling Chi? I do not know Ling Chi. It's also known as Death by a Thousand Cuts. Oh, I know that, but I don't know what that is. I mean, Ling Chi, um, Death by a Thousand Cuts itself is said to be a bit of an exaggeration, yeah. but um, 
not always. Oh. <laughs> like, let's give, I'm going to give a bit of a background, to, a bit of a description of it. Yeah. So let's have some fun with this, I guess. Yeah, let's go. Let's go for this basically, torture method. The process basically in, uh, involved tying the, the prisoner to a wooden frame, so like a stake or whatever, usually in public. And the flesh was then cut from the body in multiple slices in a process that was not specified in detail in Chinese law. Yep. So it was very quite varied depending on where you were. Great. I, f- I think originally it was said to be a, f- a hundred cuts. Yeah. And during the Ming Dynasty, it was said to have graduated to about 3,000 cuts. Oh, and basically, painful the pun- And the punishment worked on three levels. One was the form of public humiliation. Yeah. Two, as, a f- as slow and lingering death. And three, as punishment after death. Because it was a Confucian society, and basically, according to, and according to them, a lot of their belief was um, altering uh, the body or cutting the body were un... I don't know what... Yeah, like, I've, I've read Confucius before. They had this concept called being filial, which is very, yeah. very, like, yeah, un- specific to like, filial, which, culture. Yeah, filial, which is basically what in Western society would think of as blasphemous. Yeah. Basically, it was... Basically, so defying the body was a sin, basically. Yeah. To put it in the Western terms, and uh, so basically cutting the cutting the body to pieces uh, meant that it wouldn't be whole in spiritual life after death. Mm. And basically, this became pretty. This became quite solidified in Western views of the Chinese yeah. at this point, especially because um, before it got um, cut out, there were, it actually got like it lasts long enough that there was that there were pictures of it. It started becoming illegal in 1905, but that's from memory. Okay, so they have images from before then. So basically, it lasted very late into modern... Like, it's not even that far long ago. Oh, my God. It's just weird how much the world has changed in the last hundred years, isn't it? Basically, like I said, it's used for a lot of torture and stuff. And uh, But not normally, you don't get the high treason, mass murder, patricide, matricide, mm. or the murder of your master employer. Now this is where, like, this is the bit that um, is actually relevant to here because emperors often used to threaten people, or off, or sometimes off ordered as minor offences because, because they're in a bad mood. Yeah, uh, like with forced convictions and wrongful executions and stuff. <laughs> um, Great. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they even did it to family members of their enemies. Medieval China? Why are you so crazy? Yeah. I mean, too fair. Western wasn't too much. Yeah, too much better. <laughs> they were burning people in the same time, weren't they? In the yeah. West? And um, according to what I could see, it was quite difficult to get accurate details. And a lot of details are from when it was still a thing, like from mm. Western, yeah, from when Western people actually observed it. But it's said that it generally consists of cuts to the limbs, arms, legs, and chest, followed by the amputation of the limbs, yeah, or and decapitation or stab to the heart. If the crime was less serious or the execution was merciful, generally the first cut would be to the throat or straight to the heart. So. It, Kill them first. Yeah, then just carry on. Carry because on. a lot of it was the after death thing. Yeah. Because uh, like I, I imagine you wouldn't be able to last long after being cut like that. Yeah. Like, if you get like a slight cut on your face, you just bleed and you pass out, don't you? Yeah, because basically, like in the modern descriptions, it's said to have lasted me fifteen to twenty minutes because you'd bleed out so fast. Yeah. Um, but there was there are also reports of another guy which I don't have my notes, but I did read this. Well, it said that it said that his screams were heard for half a day. Oh, okay. Um, it's not. Like, it's not said how long it like 
with Oscar, you know, yeah, I think that was knows. I think that was in private. I'm not sure because it was quite a high-ranking official. Yeah, so they made it into like a publicity stunt. Um, but yeah, basically, this getting back to Zhang, yeah. it said that he um, was very obsessed with flaying and Ling Chi. Sounds like a, like a Ruse Bolton. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's also said like one of the rumors is that he um, demanded that all Ling Chi executions were done slowly without cheating. Or mercy killing? Yeah, no mercy killing. Um, oh, he sounds he sounds so fucked up at this point. And any and it's said that any cheats were subjected to lynching themselves. Jesus Christ! So yeah, and according to a guy called Shu Bi in the eighteenth century, yeah. Um, after every slaughter, um, heads were collected and placed into a big pile, while the hands were placed into other piles, and ears and noses in another pile. Why though? So that. He could keep count of his killings, okay. apparently. In one of the incidents, he is said to have uh, organised an imperial examination to uh, recruit scholars for his admin and um, basically end up having all the candidates killed, why which though? numbered in many thousands. But why, though? And um, another account, it gets better. What the fuck? This guy just sounds so detestable at this point. Yep. What the fuck? Like, he got pretty ill. Mm-hmm. Like and basically um, promised the gods that um, he would create two heavenly candles for them if he got better. He got better, so he cut off the feet of loads of women and heat them in two piles with those of his favorite concubine, whose whose feet were unusually small at the yeah. top, and uh, there were these feet were then doused in oil and set alight. Yeah, so all these masks and stuff. After these, he was said to have abandoned Chengdu because of the invading Manchu people. And basically, this resulted in a large-scale depopulation of Sichuan. Sichuan. Which, including the masks, famine, epidemics, Sichuan basically became a ghost country with... um, Like, tigers were were said to frequent city streets because it was that that empty. Yeah. Yeah. Now... Let's go on to the end of his um, yeah. reign. There'll be some more afterwards as well, but I want to just get get this out, and I'll get into some more of the interesting parts of his life as well. Yeah. So it's gonna be, after, at this point, it's going to be a bit mixed up. So, uh, yeah, just so you know. So um, in October 1646, he decided to abandon Sichuan and headed to his homeland again in Shangxi, a lot of it by boat and stuff like that. And he ended up meeting the... King forces in Xichong who were opposing him. Okay, so another time where he had another battle where he could yeah. escape out of. And he set up camp and uh, was killed in the confrontation. It was said that he, like, one of the orders he gave was to um, either dispose the treasures in the river nearby mm-hmm. or try and retreat. But either way, one of the accounts is um, that he, like, one of the main accounts that is quite popular is um, that. He left his tent, and uh, one and one of the officers were betrayed him. And he basically, his officer was a native of the Sichuan region, and uh, was named Lu Chincheng. Uh, basically, obviously, he is a native. He did not like what he did to yeah. Sichuan. <laughs> so like, it, it can't come back around and fucked him over. And basically, he pointed Zhang out to the Manchus when um, when he came out of his tent after learning about the betrayal. Yeah. Um, and when the Manchu archers shot him down. Oh, okay. So. So wait, so wait, so he got like, I don't understand. He got killed twice. No, or, what, what? Wait, I'm confused. No, basically, um, 
he, he learned about betrayal. Oh, and then, then killed him. Then came out of the tent and basically got shot as soon as he came out of the tent. <laughs> and um, that was on the 2nd of January, 1647. Yeah. And I'm surprised it's so accurate, honestly. Yeah. Like, it's it's a lot of thing, hate. There's a lot of hate behind that arrow. It, it's one of the things I realized, like, I noticed when I was reading this. It's like some of the like, dates are very specific. Mm. So, yeah, he was killed then. But before he abandoned Sichuan, uh, he divided his forces into four divisions, led by each one one of each of his four generals. And these remnants, as well as some of the Ming loyalists, actually held out in Sichuan, Yunnan, and Guizhou after his death for 13 years. So yeah, it was still held out for a, for a fair bit um, before the fighting ended in eastern Sichuan in 1664. So it's a really, really intense civil war, that is. Yeah, and by the, by the end of it, the Sichuan was under control of the Manchus. Now, um, during his life, uh, one of the popular stories is that he erected the... Like, when he was in Chengdu, he erected the steel, which is basically a big stone tablet, mm. which came to be famous for being known as the Seven Kill Steel, because it had the following inscription. And to quote, it was, Heaven brings forth innumerable things to nurture man. Man has nothing good with which to recompense heaven. Kill, 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 kill. I see. <laughs> but, um... There's a lot of doubts that this is accurate, actually, um, mm. but it's what it's fa- but it's very famous yeah. anyway, uh, because in 1934, which is a fair bit after, yeah, no, almost 300 years after, yeah, uh, steel that was thought that was discovered by a missionary who was around there, and it's thought to be this one in particular, and its reverse sides cont- contained a in an added inscription by a Ming general, uh, which is commemorating Zhang's victims whose bones he had collected and buried in 1646. And the first two lines of the of the steel are similar, but um, the line of the seven kills is absent on it. Okay, so and it's in, debatable whether or not the guy wrote kill seven times. Yeah, and instead it reads, the spirits and gods are knowing, so reflect on this and examine yourself. So it's hard to say either way. Yeah. Um, like some people think it's real, other people are, uh, think it's a distortion from the King area yeah. era because it's someone wrote that to make him look bad. Yeah. Now, let's go to Ming Shi who recorded a figure for the amount of uh, people that killed him. Yeah. Um, I just I, I know you just read it now, yeah, yeah. so I'm not I'm not going to make you guess because you already read it. But yeah, he recorded a figure of 600 million deaths. Jesus, man, um, that's just too much. Now, thing is. This makes me laugh because it's an obvious exaggeration. Yeah. And uh, because around this time, the top the total population of China was less than 150 million. So he could not have killed four times the population. Yeah. Which is, on one hand, it's hilarious. On other hand, it also accentuates how brutal he was at the time. Yeah, it was that bad that people, the statisticians were like, you know what, he killed four times the population <laughs> yeah. of China. Like, this was the official Ming dynasty history, his, yeah. history guy, basically. But yeah, <laughs> so it's probably from his reports that he had. A lot of his generals were rewarded for killing more people. Yeah, so, so they probably would have brutal as fuck. So it probably it probably would have blown up numbers a bit as well. Yeah, um, because people were rewarded. <laughs> but yeah, on a but well, I know that was, that was quite funny. But now on the others, on the flip side, the less funny part, according to a his, assistant by his, a modern historian, um, couldn't figure out who it was when I was reading about it, but. Um, the death was still enormous, and it was potentially about one million out of a total provincial population of three million. So one in three people before he got killed, basically. And 
the combination of the deaths from massacres and the people fleeing and uh, any famine of, and epidemics. Yeah. Uh, it's said to have dropped the population by as much as 75%. What a guy. And based, uh, like the last Ming census figure uh, from Sichuan in 1578, which is about 60 years before he entered Sichuan, yeah. gave a population of 3,102,000-ish. Yeah. Guess how many adult males were said to be registered um, by 1661? Which is a few, maybe. Well, if you say 75,000, you said 75% died. Like less than a million, definitely. Probably a lot less than a million. But. It said that uh, basically by um, 1661, he died in 47. So by 1661, guess how many were left? Is that 20 years after he died? 13, 14 years. Well, probably about 50,000, if that, maybe more. Because if he killed that many people, it would have been like. Like, out of 3,102,000, uh, only 16,000 adult males were registered in Sichuan. It's <laughs> like no one left, basically. Like, it's like become like a small town. Yeah, Shengdu was he said killed, to. Did he kill that many people? Or did they just like run away from Like, it's, a bit, it's basically a mix of everything. Yeah. There's how many people are registered. Yeah. Um, and males as well, because a lot of them would have been soldiers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's terrifying, isn't it? Basically, at this point, Chengdu was said to become a virtual ghost town frequented by tigers. <laughs> tigers. That, that, that's the exact quote? Yeah. Frequented by tigers is the quote. Like, tigers are the only thing that really want to come and chill in your town. Yeah. A later figure uh, from Sichuan in the, was in the 1720s, over, over 70 years after his death, yeah. and, long after, and basically long after Sichuan became, began resettled and stuff, uh, recorded 634,000 households. Okay, so it sort of recovered then. Which basically recovered to about 2.5 million individuals. So it's still, still milling 600,000 people. Like, it still hadn't completely recovered mm-hmm. 70 years later. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. What a dick. All right, it's more to that after, that bit yeah. after but first of all, um, basically, uh, before we get to the, that bit, basically a lot of people acknowledge the massacres happened and stuff, don't believe that he was responsible for a great part of the population collapse. Yeah. Because a lot of it was probably because of turmoil, famine, and disease. Yeah, so there's other factors as well. It's not just him. Yeah, because I read something recently about the Aztecs stuff. Like, recently figured out how a lot of them died, and it was because of an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, and basically, descri- and plus the Keystones, yeah. obviously. Uh, basically, described it as basically if. Fuck. It basically described it as if the Black Death and Genghis Khan hit the country at the same the time. Times, it just completely destroyed the civilization instantly. <laughs> that's, yeah, like I read that recently. and uh, That's a good way of putting it. So, yeah. So that just came up in the last couple of weeks where, oh. they've, where they decided that, I think. Well, at least that's when the article started yeah. coming out. Like, a lot of people have still definitely died. <laughs> um, yeah. And a lot of the mas- accounts of massacres were exaggerated or committed by others that were invading Manchu as well. A lot of people say his victims were Ming nobles, rich landlords, and other counter-revolutionary people. Mm. Um, and a lot, like people, a lot of people say that his um, reputation was because of King slanders and reactionary propaganda. Yeah. And the argument for that is basically if if he really massacred people while he was controlling it, uh, he would have run into a few problems straight away. Mm. Uh, two main ones being lack of recruits for soldiers. Yeah, that's not true. And the second one being a lack of farmers to produce grain so for them. So his armies wouldn't be able to survive in the first place if he yeah. just did that. And basically that would be a lot of anger and resentment which would cause a lot of defects and stuff where, like, yeah, whenever... Something came up. Yeah, whenever something bad came up, yeah. And um, on top of this, the fact that his forces kept going for 13 years after he died 
uh, basically showed that he had no shortage of crudes. Yeah. No shortage of crude and a pretty loyal population. Yeah, they must have seemed like he like he got shit done. That's probably what was like, part of it. It couldn't have been just fear yeah. 13 years after he died. Because he was dead. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's hard it's a lot of it is uh, said like for it to be hearsay and uh, propaganda from the king air forces. Kings felt the Cuban way. <laughs> because the King troops had a well-documented history of committing massacres as well. It's hard to say entirely, because he definitely wasn't a good person, at least. Well, he killed <laughs> thousands of people. Like so said, I don't said, think anyone's. But it said it's hard to say how many people he was responsible for and how many people it was just propaganda. Yeah, but yeah, you just... age of age of chaos. Was, yeah, oh, I a think good it was word that. to use. Um, and that wasn't an official thing. It was something I saw on a forum, and I was like, that is completely right from what I've read. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny that you don't really, no one really knows about him that much. Well, at least in Upper here, anyway. At least in Western parts. I'm assuming it is a lot more known around there. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, that, now we're getting into the, res- the resettlement pop thing, and that, now that's going to make you realise just how, like, how well known that must be around now. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say this is speculation, because I had not actually had time to check it to look it yeah. up. Um, but basically, because the Sichuan was so depopulated, a big resettlement programme was initiated by the Qing Dynasty around... 1670. It's weird having um, a, like an old kingdom just doing like a modern like which, thing like that. Yeah, and this lasted about this lasted all, over two centuries, and basically millions of people from Hubei, Fujian, Jiangxi, Guangdong, Shanxi, and other hey, provinces. I've been to Fujian province. That's really far away from that place. Yeah, basically all resettled in Sichuan. So they moved across the entirety of China. That must have taken ages. Yeah, and um, basically a lot of these early migrants were. Uh, had returned after fleeing, actually, including some ancestors of the Chinese league leader Deng Xiaoping. Deng. But a lot of people were also coerced because of, you know, there's all the space, you can farm it. They probably like, forced them off their land onto those lands. Yeah. That and also you can farm this place. You get you can eat if you go there. Yeah. <laughs> like, please go there, there's so much space. <laughs> a lot of the migrants came from places place like Huguang, which is now Hubei, and Hunan. Um, and it was described as a scholar called Wei Yuan as Huguang Fling Sichuan and this also triggered another massive resettlement called Jiangxi Fling Huguang because so he removed the Sichuan so it left like a deficit where they were let's not guess here ready by the late 1720s yeah the population was was very resettled and stuff now give me a percentage of how many people were reportedly non-native Probably must have been like fifty percent, maybe a bit less than that. Okay, by the late seventeen twenties, seventy to eighty percent of the population <laughs> of Sichuan was reportedly not native. That's just not right. What the hell? And as much as eighty-five percent a century later. Why though? Like it's just like it's not really like a migration. It's just like he completely took over. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of basically a lot of it creates the idea that um, Zhang was. Um, Zhang was um, responsible for a lot of the near-complete depopulation, while thousands more died and fled. But on top of this, there was another room that came, yeah. which, is more, which is actually more relevant to recent times. Yeah. Because um, basically one of the other rumours was that uh, while fleeing the enemy forces by boat, he ordered that his war chests that, were car- that he was carrying were dumped into the Mingjiang River, where it flows through today's uh, Meishang town yeah. area. 
basically recently it's been proven as more accurate actually that so that, that that hearsay rumor was actually true because um in the 1950s like from like basically from the 1950s onwards uh basically silver treasure has often washed up on shore yeah. and in 2005 a lot of farmers did a uh, family silver ingot while digging in an irrigation ditch so obviously locals began checking tre- yeah. treasure hunts they have a little look at these. and more stuff starts turning up yeah uh, very archaeological stuff, and um, some of the tr- artifacts were actually engraved with Zhang's name, so they knew it was. So they definitely yeah, so it was definitely him. him. So basically, he dumped all this silver river, so no one else could have it. Now, a bit further on, it was quite obvious that it wasn't just locals uh, going for this treasure. And the Global Times uh, in 2010 basically reported that the stretch of river that where most of the bounty had been recovered uh, became a registered historical site. So the state could get the... So stuff. technically it was protected. By the state. But in 2004... No, it wasn't actually that, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't actually know much about the state doing it, yeah. doing stuff. But um, I think a lot of that was preservation. Yeah. Um, but in 2014, so getting very recent now, Yeah. Uh, the local police basically realised that the stretch of river had become an unofficial hotspot for <laughs> scuba diving. Yeah, I get that. Uh, uh, I, to be honest, if I, if I knew there was treasure in the river opposite where I lived, I would just go and just raid it. Yeah, so basically, so basically, like, we got, we got to investigate this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I would. Over the course of two years, so 2014 to 2016, they solved 328 cases involving illegal trafficking of cultural relics. <laughs> Busted 10 trafficking rings. 10 whole trafficking rings. And recovered... Thousands of artifacts valued at over $45 million. Just worth so much money. Like £35 million, pounds maybe? Yeah, something like that. But I'm just pull, I'm just pulling numbers out my ass, but I think it's about that. At the same time, that's what they recovered. How much got out? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and um, That's an obscene amount of money. On top of this, uh, like, even though all the seven has been going on for decades, like since the 50s, uh, it was only in December 2015 where uh, academics had, of China's... Academic... Acad- Oh, I can't even say words anymore. <laughs> Rum. Academies uh, basically decided that the legend of his sunken treasure was a fact. It was actually real. Yeah, and basically asked for permission for an archaeological investigation, yeah. which was approved in June 2016. Now, on March 2017, officials basically converted a basically made a press conference to announce that it had been confirmed by the archaeological team, and they'd unearthed. Over ten thousand relics. That's a lot of silver from the riverbed, and this is like all most. This is mostly gold and silver artifacts. Yeah, and it's believed that they were plundered to finance the army, which is which yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because he had he, a lot of men, didn't he? Because remember, he grew up as a peasant. Hmm. He did not have the money to start this. He did it like he mostly paid for it through plunder, hmm. which is ridiculous. So he must have made a lot of money over the years just financing people. Yeah. So, so realistically, you might not have been a charismatic leader. You might just been a successful one. One or the other. What a guy. Well, it, I, I rec- like from what I can tell from it, I think he was because um, just because of how long it, just because of how long fighting went after he died. Yeah. Because I think if it was a, it was just an awful ruler, it wouldn't have lasted even yeah, half as long. Yeah. I so reckon it would last maybe skills. two years after. So uh, he had I some think, techers then. yeah, I think that that some of it is propaganda. Yeah, and I always think a lot of it is true, but it's it's yeah. somewhere it's somewhere between the two. 
This is this is what I love about like the, the whole Asian history thing. So no, not many people from the West actually know about it. And if you actually look at their stories, they're way more intense and crazier than you'd ever even imagine. Like you can't imagine that many people dying all at once. Yeah. Like you can't imagine that many people in general half the time. Yeah. Like it's pretty in- it's pretty intense. Yeah, but yeah. Tell me. So anyway, that was the story of Zhang <laughs> Shanzong, and that's what I'm sticking to now. So, what? Any thoughts before we? He started killing and did not stop killing, like for like the entirety of his life. Yeah, it's uh, very in, it's incredibly intense and uh, very hard to imagine. <laughs> what a guy! What a guy! Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, that was his story. We'll cut some music now and come out with an outro. Um, so yeah, um, we'll be right back, guys. And we are back. So, uh, just to finish up real quick. Yep. Um, first of all, Eamon, do you, is there anything you want to plug or give a shout out to or anything like that? Uh, right, you've got some time if you want it. Uh, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a cool shit of the week in a second as well. Yeah, alright, nothing for you. Uh, yeah, like, uh, okay. Um, once again, a couple of shout outs. Nox Arcana for, for providing our intermission music. A few podcasts that I've been listening to this week. Corpus Delicti. I binged maybe four episodes, in, like four or five episodes in a row earlier, just, like I think on Sunday, and had a good time with that. True crime all the time, and Canadian true crime podcast, which are all very good, and they're all like this week's all true crime podcasts. Mm, yeah, dodgy crime. Oh, I have one recommendation for people. Yes, it'd be cool. If you guys haven't watched it, I still recommend you guys watch Let the Right One In, the original Norwegian version. Because I really want to watch that, actually. I haven't seen it yet. It's a brilliant romance between a vampire who's like 400 years old and an 80-year-old boy. Perfect. And it's so fucked up, but also so really touching and wholesome at the same time. I'm not really sure which way to sway. <laughs> and so it's a really, really, really good film. Excellently shot. And it has these really... It's one of my favourite things about it is that they've laced the 400-year-old vampire girl, who's like eight years old also, with a grown woman. So when you hear her speaking, you can't tell if it's a child or an adult. And it's mm. horrific. I should watch that. It's really good. Because I, it's one that's been on my list for years. I highly I highly recommend it. But literally only in the last two years or so, I've actually gotten into horror movies. I've actually been able to watch horror it's films. It's not a horror film, though. It's more of a thriller. Yes, like, but uh, also like it's more like and, a fucked up romance. Basically, until about a year ago, I was a huge, I was a huge wimp. Oh no! I, 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 actually, but, no. Yeah, like me. even though I loved horror stuff, yeah. I just didn't watch it because yeah. I was like, this I'm be fucking scary. Yeah. But now I'm just like, I don't really care anymore. Yeah. I think like, I got very into the horror genre and I was yeah. like, I'm more appreciative than scared. I find. Yeah, it's it's like you have to have a balance between it being scary but not being so scary that you lose interest. Because um, you can only maintain that for a little bit. I think a lot, after doing a lot of uh, horror RPGs, I started looking more about how they scared people rather than yeah. what rather than what was scary. So I, instead of when I every time I watch horror films, I'm just I, I don't look at what's scary anymore. I look at how they made things scary. Oh, so you analyze it more than you actually. Which, yeah. I, which was unexpected. I just I kind of I didn't realize I was doing it until after like a while, like maybe about 
maybe about a year after I started GMing. Yeah. So it's like. <laughs> so you know, you know, it's so now you're trying to incorporate it into your games. Pretty much. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's fucking scary. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. So, um, and then what, my cool thing of the week I normally do, which I, I, forgot, I forgot to do the last two weeks actually entirely. But I forgot last week, the week before, I didn't do it because I was like, it was a really dark story. So I was like, I'll leave it. Let's not let's not put that in there. But yes, so uh, this week I'm going to say, just because I've got a craving to rewatch at the moment, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to A Silent Voice, which is an anime movie. And it's so good. Very, it's, it's about this deaf girl who gets bullied a lot in school and then one of the bullies basically uh, basically gets thrown in the bus for it. Fuck. And uh, ends up making, like, trying to make friends with him, trying to get forgiveness and stuff. Yeah. And it's very, like, it's one of those films that this is so sad. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's got a lot of heartwarming moments to it and I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's one of the films I would consider as uh, one of 2017's masterpieces. Damn. I'll have to see that. Um, it's so good. Damn, something to watch there. Oh, yes. Anyway, so, another reminder that we have a Patreon coming up, which I'm trying to set up, and potentially some merch, but I'm not sure yet. But, yeah, so that's coming up soon. Uh, hopefully, I should be able to get some bonus content, and uh, and I'm thinking early releases for Patreons. Sounds great. Like, no, it's not nothing's been finalised yet. I'm still mm. trying to work it out and trying to figure out how... Um, Patreon works. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, shout out to the Britpod scene as well, because I forgot to do that first. Uh, so if you look at BritpodScene.com, you can find loads of other interesting British podcasts. And I've social media. And social media, that's the last thing. Okay. So, and we can, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, um, and we also have an email at botrpodcast at gmail.com. I f- think that's everything. Hey. I always, I forget something every week. Yeah. If you notice something I forgot, let me know on Twitter because that's where, <laughs> I, because that's where I'm most, uh, gen- that's generally where I'm most, uh, active. Thank you everyone that's said, that's told their friends about this or shared this podcast. It, really means a lot to me so thanks for listening I'll see you next Tuesday alright man thank you for listening see you around ba da ba da